Testing recording levels Hello and welcome for the to this week's recording. episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we'll be beginning our reading and discussion of Rolf W. Gable's translation of the Vajrasekara Sutra. This title in Sanskrit contains two parts. The first is Vajra. The word Vajra refers to a handheld ritual weapon with three or five prongs on each end. This is a very important symbol in many different schools of Buddhism as a metaphorical representation of enlightenment. The weapon and the word itself have two meanings or aspects. One is the characteristic of a thunderbolt, which is instantaneous and irresistible. This refers to the sudden intensity with which enlightenment strikes an individual. The other meaning or aspect is that of the diamond, which is unbreakable and indestructible. This refers to the ideal of cultivating meditative concentration and commitment to the Buddha way that is unbreakable and unwavering. The second part, sekara, means realization, achievement, or to summit. Hence, you will sometimes see this text referred to as the Adamantine Pentacles Sutra. This title actually refers to several texts, and the one we will be using is the one that is most influential in Chinese and Japanese Shingon Buddhism. This particular text comes to us from Amogavajra's Chinese translation of the Sanskrit, Sarva Tathagatatva Sangraha. This text is regarded as a tantra and a sutra. If you remember, Tantra refers to any textual and theoretical framework as well as the accompanying practices and rituals, and Sutra refers to a sermon of the Buddha. Thus, this text is a sermon wherein Vairachana preaches a Tantra to his audience. The text begins with an introduction to Vairachana and members of his audience. They are described in great detail to the reader, and their natures as to the process of attaining enlightenment are listed. Next, Vairachana and his audience visit the historical Buddha Shakyamuni. They preach to the young Buddha Shakyamuni who is meditating under the Bodhi tree, but has not yet reached enlightenment. They teach him various kinds of rituals, mantras, and meditations that are still used in Shingon Buddhism to this day. Today, we will be reading and discussing Fascicle 1, General Introduction, Supplementary Introduction, Own Nature of Mahavairachana, and Samadhi of the First Yoga, Adi Yoga Nama Samadhi. We hope you enjoy. Thus have I heard. At one time, the Lord, who had accomplished the most excellent knowledge of the Samaya of Adamantine empowerment of all the Tathagatas, who had obtained consecration as the Dharma king of the three realms of desire, form, and non-form, with the gemmed diadem of all the Tathagatas, who had realized the mastery of the yoga of the knowledge of the omniscient one of all the Tathagatas, and who was skilled in performing manifold deeds based upon the equality of all seals of all the Tathagatas, by which all wishes and activities in all realms of sentient beings, inexhaustible and without exception, are all accomplished, this same Lord, namely Vairachana of great compassion, the Tathagata who eternally abides throughout the three ages of past, present, and future, and is the Vajra of all body, speech, and mind, was residing in the great Mani Hall within the palace of the king of the Akanishta heaven, a place frequented by all the Tathagatas. This palace was variously adorned with bells large and small, and silken banners swaying in the gentle breeze, and it was bedecked with chaplets of pearls, strings of precious stones, half and full moons, and the like. Vairachana was together with an assembly of 81 billion bodhisattvas, headed by the following bodhisattvas, namely the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva Vajrapani, 
the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva, Noble Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva, Youthful Manjushri, the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva, Akasagarbha, the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva, Vajramusti, the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva, Sahachitotpada Dharma Chakra Pavartin, the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva, Gaganaganja, and the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva, Sarvamara Bala Pramardin. He was also with the Tathagatas equal in number to the sands of the Ganges River, who appeared and filled the land of Jambudvipa, just like sesame seeds packed closely together in a sesame pod. It was the same in the Akanishta heaven. From each of the bodies of these Tathagatas, of immeasurable numbers, there appeared immeasurable Asamkhya Buddha Kshetras, or Buddha lands. And in these Buddha Kshetras too, the guiding principles of this teaching were being expounded. Now, the Lord, the Tathagata Mahavairachana, who abides forever throughout all empty space and is the Vajra of the body, speech, and mind of all the Tathagatas, is through mutual interpenetration with all the Tathagatas, the knowledge sattva, who enlightens all adamantine realms, he is the knowledge matrix, born of adamantine empowerments equal in number to the dust motes in the entire realm of empty space, and, owing to the infinitude of all the Tathagatas, he is the gem of the great adamantine knowledge consecration. By means of the knowledge of thusness pervading all empty space, he has actually realized Sambodhi, and because all the Tathagatas are themselves by nature pure, all dharmas are, for him, pure by nature. By means of the knowledge that manifests all forms throughout all empty space, he is supreme in the act of subduing all realms of sentient beings without exception, and through his infallible execution of the commands of all the Tathagatas, he is endowed with all unequaled and unsurpassed skillful knowledge. He is the sattva firm in great enlightenment of all the Tathagatas. He is the samaya of hook summoning of all the Tathagatas. He is self-master of the knowledge of enrapturement of all the Tathagatas. He is the applause of all the Tathagatas. He is the gem of consecration of all the Tathagatas. He is the halo of light of the solar disk of all the Tathagatas. He is the banner of the Mani gem, thought king, of all the Tathagatas. He is the great laugh of all the Tathagatas. He is the great pure dharma of all the Tathagatas. He is the prajna knowledge of all the Tathagatas. He is the wheel of all the Tathagatas. He is the secret speech of all the Tathagatas. He is the infallible and manifold deeds of all the Tathagatas. He is the very firm armor of great energy of all the Tathagatas. He is the adamantine yaksha of the universal protection of all the Tathagatas. He is the knowledge of the seal of the Vajra of body, speech, and mind of all the Tathagatas. He is the universally worthy one, the most infallible one, Mara, the lord of extreme joy, the matrix of space, the wondrous great light, the gemmed banner, the great smile, the great self-master of vision, Manju, every altar, the speechless one, the manifold doer, the energy, anger, and firm hold. He is Vajra, hook, arrow, joy, gem, sun, banner, laugh, lotus, sword, wondrous wheel, speech, karma, armor, fear, and hold. He is without beginning, without end, the quiet one, the violent one, the wrathful one, and of great calm patience. He is a yaksha, a rakshasa, the valiant one, the majestic one, the fierce one, and of great opulence. He is lord of the goddess Uma, lord of the world, Vishnu, the victorious one, and the great silent one. He is protector of the world, empty space, the earth, the three worlds, and the three realms. He is the great elements of good benefit to people all, Sarva, and the paternal grandfather. 
He is transmigration, nirvana, the eternal one, proper conduct, and great among the great. He is the enlightened one, the pure one, the great vehicle, and the three existences, and the perpetual one. He is the vanquisher of the three worlds, one who enjoys happiness, ruler and subduer of all. He is the steadfast Lord, the foremost of the wondrous stages, knowledge, and the guiding principle of the further shore. He is liberation, the sentient being of enlightenment, practice, and all Tathagata. He is the benefit of the enlightened one, the heart of the Buddha, all enlightenment, and the unsurpassed one. He is the universally illuminating one, the supreme one, the Lord, the spontaneously born one, the all-retaining one, and mindfulness. He is the great sattva, the great seal, mental equipoise, and doer of the activity of the Buddhas. He has all the Buddhas for a body. He is a sattva, and awakens others to the eternal wheel. He is the great foundation, the great black one, great passionate desire, and great bliss. He is the great expedient means, the supreme one, the all-supreme one, and self-master of the palace. This same Lord, the great mind of enlightenment, and great Bodhisattva Samantabhadra, was residing in the hearts of all the Tathagatas. Samadhi of the First Yoga Adi Yoga Nama Samadhi At that time, all the Tathagatas filled this Buddha world just like sesame seeds packed closely together in a sesame pod. Then, all the Tathagatas gathered as if in a cloud and betook themselves to where the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva Sarvartasiddhi was seated at the place of enlightenment. Manifesting the body of enjoyment, they spoke all together as follows. Good sir, how will you, who endure ascetic practices without knowing the truth of all the Tathagatas, realize unsurpassed perfect enlightenment? Thereupon the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva Sarvartasiddhi, having been aroused by all the Tathagatas, arose from the Ashpanaka Samadhi, made obeisance to all the Tathagatas, and said, World-honored Tathagatas, please instruct me. How should I practice? What is the truth? When he had finished speaking thus, all the Tathagatas addressed the Bodhisattva in unison, saying, Good sir, abiding in the samadhi of observing one's mind, you should chant as many times as you please with the following mantra, which is effective of its own nature. Om Chitta Prativedam Karomi Om I penetrate the mind. Then the Bodhisattva said to all the Tathagatas, World-honored Tathagatas, I have understood it completely. I see my heart to be like a lunar disk in shape. All the Tathagatas addressed him all together, saying, Good sir, the mind is by nature radiant. It is just as, when you make extensive efforts, the result obtained is in proportion to the action, or when you dye a white garment, it changes color according to the dye. Then, in order to increase his knowledge of the mind radiant by nature, all the Tathagatas again commanded the Bodhisattva, saying, Om Bodhicittam Utpadayami. Om, I generate the mind of enlightenment, and caused him to generate the mind of enlightenment with this mantra, which is effective by nature. Thereupon the Bodhisattva, having generated the mind of enlightenment in accordance with the instructions of all the Tathagatas, spoke again as follows. That which was like a lunar disk in shape I again see to be really like a lunar disk in shape. All the Tathagatas addressed him, saying, you have already generated the mind of Samantabhadra of all the Tathagatas. In order to obtain firmness equal to that of Avajra, duly abiding in this generation of the mind of Samantabhadra of all the Tathagatas, contemplate the form of Avajra on the lunar disk in your heart with this mantra, Om Tista Vajra. Om Stand O Vajra. 
The Bodhisattva said, World honor Tathagatas, I see a Vajra on the lunar disk. All the Tathagatas addressed him all together, saying, Make firm the Vajra in the mind of Samantavajra of all the Tathagatas with this mantra Om Vajratmakoham. Om, I am of the nature of a Vajra. Thereupon, the adamantine realms of the body, speech, and mind of all the Tathagatas, such as pervade the entire realm of empty space, all enter the Sattva Vajra, presented by the Vajra on the lunar disk, through the empowerment of all the Tathagatas. Then, all the Tathagatas consecrated the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva, Sarvartasiddhi, with an adamantine name, calling him Vajradhatu, Vajradhatu. Then, the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva Vajradhatu said to all those Tathagatas, World-honored Tathagatas, I see all the Tathagatas as myself. All the Tathagatas addressed him again, saying, Therefore, Mahasattva, the whole Sattva Vajra, perfected with all excellent forms, you visualize as yourself, in the form of a Buddha, with this mantra, which is effective of its own nature, reciting it at will. Om Yatha Sarva Tathagatas Tataam Om, as are all the Tathagatas, so am I. Having said this, the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva Vajradhatu actually realized himself to be a Tathagata, and after having made full obeisance to all the Tathagatas, he said, World-honored Tathagatas, I beg you to empower me and to make this actual realization of enlightenment firm. When he had finished saying this, all the Tathagatas entered into the Sattva Vajra of the Tathagata Vajradhatu. Then, at that very moment, the world-honored one, the Tathagata Vajradhatu, actually realized with perfect enlightenment the knowledge of equality of all the Tathagatas, entered the Samaya of the knowledge of equality of all the Tathagatas, was pure by nature, having realized the knowledge of the equality of all dharmas of all the Tathagatas, became the matrix of the knowledge of the natural radiance of equality of all the Tathagatas, and became a Tathagata, one worthy of worship, and a perfectly all-knowing one. Then all the Tathagatas came forth again from the Sattva Vajra of all the Tathagatas, and consecrated him with the great Mani gem of Akasagarbha, generated in him the Dharma knowledge of Avalokiteshvara, and established him in the Visvakarmata, the universal activity of all the Tathagatas. From here, they proceeded to a pavilion with a pinnacle made of Vajras and Mani gems on the summit of Mount Sumeru. Upon arriving there, the Tathagata Vajradhatu was established by the empowerment of all the Tathagatas on the lion throne of all the Tathagatas, facing all directions. Then all the Tathagatas, represented by the Tathagata Akshobhya, the Tathagata Ratnasambhava, the Tathagata Vokeshvaraja, the Tathagata Amogasiddhi, empowered themselves as all the Tathagatas, and since the Lord, the Tathagata Shakyamuni, had fully mastered the equality of everything, observing the equality of all directions, they seated themselves in the four quarters. So that was part one of fascicle one of the Vajrasekara Sutra, or the Adamantine Pinnacle Sutra. Docs, any questions? A few. So, one thing that I want to get to before we get into the meat of the actual sutra, I heard the word eternal a few times in this sutra. So, with regards to Vairochana. So, we need to talk, I guess, a bit about Vairochana's relation to impermanence. Off the top of my head, 
in previous discussions of extreme lifespans, the word we've used is immeasurable rather than eternal. So on the one hand, I could see this being an issue where it's a you know a translation issue where eternal and immeasurable maybe the difference doesn't translate well. Or I could also see this being a case of Virochana being a manifestation of the perfect Dharma actually is eternal, or might be better said, isn't subject to impermanence. So I want to untangle that a bit. Like, how do these different ideas square off against each other? That's a really good question. And you actually hit it right on the money in your own kind of explanation. Virachana here is being sort of aligned with, or even like the distinction between him and the Dharma is being collapsed. So Dharma and awakening, suffering, impermanence, emptiness, all of these characteristics of reality that we have established and have talked about, none of these characteristics are themselves subject to impermanence, emptiness, etc., etc. So impermanence is not impermanent, and dukkha is not impermanent, and awakening, nirvana, is not impermanent. It's something that is just a characteristic or a trait of things in reality and is not subject to the rules thereof. And as we progress through Buddhist history to the point where this text is authored and where this text becomes very important, which is around the 6th, 7th century CE, because the historical Buddha Shakyamuni has died, we start to see these texts which sort of make the Buddha himself, be it Virachana or Shakyamuni, make them out to be non-different, like totally same as Buddhahood, as awakening, as the Dharma itself. And the Dharma is beginningless and endless. And it doesn't violate impermanence because it's not a specific thing in reality. It sort of is reality, if that makes sense. It's the true nature or the foundation of reality. And so because of that, it can have these characteristics of being eternal and not violate the rules that we've set up so far. However, it's a non-trivial question because Virachana is a Buddha. He is a character who has manifested in reality. And the rule is all things that arise and cease in reality, they are subject to impermanence. So I guess what that means for this text is that Virachana gets to sort of straddle both sides. His quote-unquote Dharma body, his Dharmakaya, is the one that's eternal and manifests itself into a Nirmanakaya or a Sambhogakaya, that is a physical body in the world which is subject to emptiness and permanence and suffering, or as a celebration body, which is something that you see whenever you meditate and whenever you realize specific truths or something like that. So he gets to have it both ways because as you can see in the early part, he's described as all of reality. He's described as being everything. He's even described as being Mara, the great tempter, right? Yeah, that's one thing I was going to bring up is that one of his titles is Mara and a uh, reference to extreme joy. On its own, that's not very Buddhist in that, you know, Mara and extreme joy are things to resist. And yet, here we are, if Virachana is all of it, then he is also Mara. That's right. And 
we started to see also this shift away from maybe what you would call like a world negating view of the Dharma, which the Mahayana accuses the Theravada of having, which is that, you know, all of reality as we know it is dukkha, is impermanent, is empty, and therefore we should pierce through that veil in order to get to the good stuff, in order to get to the true nature of enlightenment. And in doing so, we've moved away from this immoral and impure stuff that we're bombarded with day in, day out. But now with Vairachana, now with esoteric Buddhism, we start to see this assertion that even the bad stuff, even the immoral and impure stuff, represents in it the totality of the perfect dharma. It wouldn't be a perfect and complete dharma if it left anything out. And so it's possible to, even through means that are impure, reach purity, reach enlightenment, reach awakening, even through desire and temptation. This is something that's reinforced strongly in the Vimalakirti Sutra, where Vimalakirti is sort of a bodhisattva in the real world. He's a womanizer, he hangs out with prostitutes and with gamblers and all this other stuff. And the reason why is because he's not defiling himself, he's not taking himself off the bodhisattva path, he's going where all the suffering is as a means of helping people there, but also as a means of attaining his own enlightenment and maintaining his own path. So Vairochana here is seen as doing both. That's why in esoteric Buddhism, they say that all living things, but even and especially all non-living things, be they pure, impure, be they marked by dukkha, they are all something that is part of the complete, total, perfect dharma, and they are all able to be means toward reaching enlightenment. So this first section we get to supplementary introduction own nature of Mahavirochana. Is there anything in here, like we already talked about Mara popping up in here, and I believe this is also where we saw the word eternal pop up. Are there any, this is otherwise a whole lot of titles. Is there anything in here that we should like dissect specifically? Or is it like, this seems, when you're doing the recitation, all of this is very important. But for the purpose of comprehending what's going on here, it looks like these are a lot of ways of saying Virachana is everything. He's all of it. That's exactly what's going on. And if there is anything in there to sort of dig into a little bit deeper, they say that he's everything and he's all the good stuff, such as Dharma, Awakening, etc., etc. But they give special attention to the fact that he's also outer space. He's the empty space in between stars, and he's also sort of the collective entire universe. Because as we've talked about before, esoteric Buddhism is unique in saying that the world we live in, the phenomenal reality we're a part of, is not a thing unto itself. It's actually the literal Dharma Kaya, the literal Dharma body of Vairachana himself. And so everything in that reality, every small little Dharma, small d Dharma that we can kind of perceive and exist in and recognize and sense all of that is like a letter or a word in this giant dharma, this giant corpus of the Buddha Dharma. And how does that make sense physically? Well, this text says that he is the matrix of space. He is light. He's the great banner. He's the great smile. He's all empty space at the same time as being everything that is not empty space. So they're trying to capture this cosmic aspect to him because his name, Vairachana, is sort of like Buddha of the cosmos. So 
this is cosmic scale, basically. That's right, yeah. So past that, we get to Samadhi of the First Yoga. And the basic thrust of this section is the Mahasattva, uh, see if I'm pronouncing this right, Sarvartasiddhi. Yeah, Sarvartasiddhi. So Sarvartasiddhi is in here basically taking the role of the person who wants to unite with Vairochana. Uh, we've seen this in other sutras already where a bodhisattva will basically ritualistically take on the role of the outside observer for this sutra to be the skillful means to show what the sutra's trying to get at, basically. Yeah, and what's interesting about Sarvarta City is that he's actually Shakyamuni. He's actually our historical Buddha, and Sarvarta City is his esoteric name or his Vairochana name. So ah. this is a guy we've seen before. So it's very significant that in a story that we have not previously seen in other tellings of the life of the Buddha, we see that whenever he's meditating under the Bodhi tree and he's right about to reach enlightenment, but he's not quite there yet, then Vairochana visits him and gives him this entire sermon. It's very significant because it places Vairochana as being the one who tipped our historical Buddha over the edge into enlightenment by giving him this specific stuff. So he had just about everything he needed thus far, and it was this stuff that represented like the capstone of what he needed to finally have insight into emptiness, impermanence, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, Dukkha, etc., etc. And it would make sense for this to be the kind of thing that one would need an outside influence to get to if you're starting from a viewpoint of Earth, what we can see, then Vairochana can sweep in and add the cosmic element. So this is a reasonable spot to put that outside or maybe not outside as much as larger scale influence. Absolutely, yeah. So there's a little bit of self-legitimizing going on here too, because right. where this text comes from, there's a lot more emphasis on esoteric Buddhism and on Vairochana as sort of the main Buddha of emphasis and of ritual and veneration and worship. And so by placing him kind of above Shakyamuni in significance here, and by harping on some of the cosmic stuff that we'll hit on soon in the Lotus Sutra, it kind of makes Vairochana out to be almost like a god, like a capital G god for esoteric Buddhism. He's not the same as like a Judeo-Christian capital G god for a lot of reasons, reasons that we've talked about on the show before, but it's hard to see the thin distinctions the more that we hear about the infinity of Vairochana and the complete and totality of Vairochana and the like everythingness. Because he's not just omniscient, as all Buddhas are when they reach enlightenment. He's not just omnipresent, being that he's like everything, that the Dharma is literally all of reality. But he's also like even more enlightened and even more significant and influential than Shakyamuni himself, our historical Buddha. So it's very interesting to put him in that position. But we've also seen sutras do something similar in the past with 
for example, the Lotus Sutra telling everything about how it is the king of the sutras. And we also saw that even back in Theravada with the Buddha being placed above Brahma. This is something that happens in these religions, it seems. Fairly frequently, even. Absolutely, yeah. And there's the negative side of it, which is kind of the sniping that we see sometimes with Buddhism sniping towards like Hinduism or Brahmanical traditions that existed at the same time, or also Mahayana to Theravada. There's that negative side, but I think that giving Vairochana the opportunity to preach to Shakyamuni right before he reaches enlightenment, it's a self-legitimizing act, but I don't think that it's necessarily condescending or negative. I think that it's more like set dressing to just allow there to be circumstance and significance for Vairochana preaching what's important to esoteric Buddhism, particularly the mantras, moon meditation, the mandalas, etc. And also, even in the Theravada documents, there is precedent for outside forces influencing the Buddha's enlightenment. Uh, Mara comes to challenge him while he's meditating. Brahma convinces him to try to teach. This is it's not unprecedented, is what I would say there. Uh, it's happened before, and like you said, it's self-legitimizing, but I agree that it's not quite condescending. It's adding another level, while not really damaging previous levels, at least in this document so far. That's how I feel as well. So through this, we get through several mantras. So could you redefine mantra? So like, I'm tr I'm trying to remember the difference between mantra, dhirini, and my what's the quick definition again? Yeah, so mantras, dharanis, and tantras all exist kind of on the same spectrum. Mantras are short phrases which have some sort of magical power due to the sound that the syllables make. So the power of them is not entirely due to the meaning as much as the resonance that the sound creates with the fundamental syllable, the ah syllable, which is very significant, very important in esoteric Buddhism. The meaning is usually a condensed phrase of a sutra or of some other ritual text that's very important, as we'll see. But the, the meaning is not often taught alongside the mantra. It's usually just the sound that's most important. And that sound will then be left untranslated. So recently, whenever we did our Israel-Palestine episode, I chanted the light mantra, which in Japanese is known as the Komyo Shingon at the end of the episode. And that is actually a direct transliteration of Sanskrit into Japanese syllables. So they try to maintain the original sound as much as is possible. The light mantra itself as I mentioned, has a specific meaning and has a specific textual significance, but that's not what's powerful and important about it. It's the power of the noise that your mouth makes, the power that the sound ex exerts over the physical world and over your body in the right here and right now when you say it. So one of the mantras that we get, or the first one that we get is Om Chita Pravidevam Karomi. So that's the mantra, that's the meaning of it is Om, I penetrate the mind, right? And that's an interesting meaning, but the sound itself is the actual penetrating of the mind. And the same carries through with the rest of them. It's the sound that does the thing and not the meaning. 
And then Tantras and Dharanis are longer versions of this kind of stuff. So a Dharani is the next longest type of text. It's like medium length between the length of a mantra and a Tantra. And a Dharani is, again, kind of a condensed sort of ritual recitation, which has been condensed for mnemonic purposes and also in which the sound is very important. And then a Tantra can be an entire text, or it can also be the theoretical framework within that text. So this text that we're reading, the Vajrasekara Sutra, it's also often referred to as a Tantra, and it's because it's a sutra or a text wherein Vairachana preaches a Tantra or a framework to an audience. So the Tantra is a little bit more semantically cloudy and nebulous. It can be more stuff than dharani or, or mantra. But yeah, mantra is sort of the short one-sentence phrases or two-sentence phrases that have special powerful sounds. Even though the translation is not the important part, I can see in the translations kind of a framework starting for what these are trying to say. Like the mantras, the sounds might be the important part, but I also see a narrative or rather the framework of a narrative in their translations that, like you said, is kind of standing in for entire teachings. So like we're talking about penetrate the mind and then generate the mind of enlightenment is the next one. That's still a sequence that is going. That's an inver- That's a very important kind of characteristic of this text is that it sets a ritual precedent for the mantras to be given to the practitioner in a sequential fashion. So if you're actually practicing esoteric Buddhism, you probably wouldn't get the very last one, Om Yatha Sarva Tathagatas Tataam, Om as are all Tathagatas, so am I. You probably wouldn't get that one first, or at least ritually, you wouldn't recite that one first. These are given out as you sort of progress through the steps, which Vairachana is taking Shakyamuni through in order to sort of unify himself with Vairachana and be placed into the Diamond Realm Mandala, which is constructed in the section that we'll read next after this one. So the last comment I want to make is that this is Shakyamuni, or in this case, it's uh, Sarvartha Siddhi, is being, through this process, pulled into Vairachana. So, like, Vairachana is also all the Tathagatas, and at this point, he hasn't gotten there yet, but after this is included in there, it makes sense that this process would also pull him into Vairachana. It's the symbolic completion of enlightenment, I would guess. The uh, It's another aspect of non-duality and non-self as well, getting pulled into all of these this group of Tathagatas all at once. I also note that if you're looking at this from the outside and don't understand what's going on, this could also look like the Borg. Like, this could, without the right context, look like a terrifying, horrifying process. Yeah, right, because you sort of turn into the moon and then you go inside of like Vairachana, who is all of the cosmos, and then you're transformed into an entirely different character, and then you take your seat wherever that is. That's sort of the process that Sarvartha Siddhi Shakyamuni goes through in this first section, and then 
the entire next section will be a lot quicker of a discussion because it's just a list of bodhisattvas and Buddhas who do the same thing and then take their places. And so the whole process is really kind of, I don't know, it's kind of like you say, an ego death of sorts where you sort of dissolve into the nature of all of the cosmos and you are not imposing any sort of other diluted or ignorant causes or conditions over that in order to maintain you know, your diluted perspective of self or impermanence, emptiness, what have you. But it's not just sort of like a nice, calm, happy sort of dissolution into the ground, as you might say. It's more like a huge cosmic transformation. It's almost like a supernova in scale. It's very much described as like a dramatic process. And that's sort of the, again, the precedent that's set for the process of sort of reaching your own enlightenment and receiving the Dharma from your master through mind-to-mind transmission. So you're sort of the same way that Vairachana transforms all of these all of these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, so too does the master, who is one in nature with Vairachana, transforms all his students and all of his disciples in the same way. So it's kind of like setting up how esoteric Buddhism continues to be practiced and how it's continued to be understood throughout the rest of East Asian history. Like I said, without the context involved, that could be like the same idea could easily be morphed into something eldritch in its horror and its scope. Because again, this is everything. And so this is the kind of thing that would break the mind in a horror story. Uh, but we're talking about the Buddha who is more enlightened than us and mentally and spiritually stronger and would be able to perhaps handle that transformation gracefully. But I suspect if you put one of us in that situation, it would be horrifying. It kind of depends. I think that, so as esoteric becomes Shingon in Japan, at that time, original enlightenment is sort of already a an ongoing thought process or a developing thought process for understanding how Buddhism ought to look in real life. And so this original enlightenment thesis, which is that in our original default forms, we are fully enlightened and practice is not a means of cultivating that for the first time. It's actually a means of returning to that state. The idea might be that if we put ourselves into that position, we might just return to our original state as we're sort of kind of going back through our ignorances, through our deluded memories and perspectives that we've accumulated over many rebirths and finally pierce through to that sort of enlightened foundation that sort of supports all of us and how we look at the world. And that can be a scary process, but to think it's scary or not as scary as what's going on in this text with Chakamuni, I'm not so sure. It's kind of a difficult question. I think that ego death in general, which is sort of this modern Western term we we come up with to talk about these sort of cosmic experiences that can be potentially mind-breaking but are at least transformative in some way, I think that that has a little bit of apprehension in the minds of Westerners. You know, like it's something that excites people, but it also kind of makes them a little nervous. 
And the reason why is because it is a sort of death, right? This is the complete and total death of all of Shakyamuni that is not Vairachana, if that makes sense. All of Shakyamuni, which is not singular and one with Vairachana, sort of goes away. It just sort of fizzles away and then he becomes himself again, but one with Vairachana. It's interesting because I have the exact opposite idea on this. This is it, it looks to me less like the parts of the Buddha that are not Vairachana dying. It looks to me more like the threat here isn't death, it's eternity and infinity. Like the reason that I have apprehensions around the ideas of eternity infinity is I know math and infinity and eternity are both states that I do not want to get anywhere near. And this union with Vibrachana is the end of death. Like this is an eternal state. And that's the part of it that would frighten me personally. I guess the argument is that all fears and all ideas about infinity and eternity would sort of go away with this sort of death of death, the dying of being able to die whenever you become Vairachana. When you become reality itself and you become Vairachana himself, you're aware that you are all reality and you're aware that you are Vairachana and you are aware as you are preaching the Dharma to yourself, but at the same time, you don't have any sort of self-oriented thoughts. You don't have any thoughts of capital S self. You don't have any thoughts of existence, and you're free from desire and attachment. So it's almost like the greatest experience of non-self to the point where you don't even have a concept of self left. You don't even have like singular consciousness POV left to sort of perceive the world around you, if that makes sense. You sort of become everything. And I think that's kind of the attraction, is that it's nirvana, but nirvana in the Theravada sense has always been complete and total extinction. That's kind of been, if we say the threat, that's kind of the threat of arhatship is like whenever you die, you don't ever, ever, ever come back and there's no experience whatsoever. But this is sort of reimagining that extinction as not the absence of existence, but sort of the totality of existence. And I kind of, if I had to pick one, I would pick that one. Well, I, I would pick the total extinction. But also that fear that I'm expressing here is probably also evidence that I am not currently enlightened. So theoretically, before getting to that point, that fear would go away. It might also be evidence that you are, because Vairachana is also fear of infinity. <laughs> He's everything, so you could be anything. I would say at that point, the definition becomes, if your word doesn't distinguish anything, it starts becoming not a particularly useful word at that point. So like that's, again, discursive, discrete thought, which, again, is something we're supposed to be getting away from. Again, I would argue that is evidence that I am not currently enlightened. Right, yeah. So the last thing that I wanted to mention just briefly before we close out is this metaphor of the Vajra. This isn't something we've talked about or seen very much before, but the Vajra is literally a handheld ritual weapon with three or five prongs on each end of it. And it's just as much of an important symbol in Buddhism as the lotus. 
So the lotus is like a symbol for bodhisattvahood because a lotus grows in muddy water and yet is still pure and perfect. And that's kind of how a bodhisattva should be coming out of the muddy water of the realm of suffering and samsara and so on. They should be pure and perfect. The Vajra is a metaphorical representation of samadhi, of meditative absorption, but also of enlightenment itself. So the one aspect and the one meaning of the word is that of the thunderbolt, which is instantaneous and is a force that is so powerful that it is irresistible, no matter how strong or powerful you are. And this refers to sudden enlightenment, sudden awakening, and also the sort of depth and irresistibility of that awakening when it strikes. And the other meaning or aspect of the word is like the diamond. So it's supposed to be unbreakable and indestructible. This is particularly important in samadhi or meditative concentration. Your meditation and your concentration is supposed to be indestructible and unbreakable after enough practice. And it's referring to the ideal of cultivating meditative concentration and commitment to the Buddha way that is itself diamond-like, unwavering and indestructible. So this Vajra is very, very important. In esoteric Buddhism, whenever you succeed the Dharma from your master, you're given a literal Vajra. And that Vajra is said to be representative of you having received the Dharma, having become enlightened by means of a lightning bolt, and the power of that enlightenment being diamond-like in nature, as in it can't be ever broken, it can't be ever gone back from, and so on. So the Vajra is very important, and we're going to see it a lot through the rest of this text, but also through the rest of esoteric texts in general. It's a good uh, image search, because there's a lot of iconography that I can see from it. Exactly, yeah. And it's part of the title of this sutra as well, the Vajra Sekara Sutra. As I mentioned in the intro, Vajra refers to this ritual weapon, and Sekara means like realization, achievement, or summiting something, summit to like summit a mountain. And so this is sort of the realization or the perfection uh, or the actualization of being like a Vajra. And so that's the purpose of this text is sort of to lay out how to join the Vajradhatu, the realm of Vajra. So it's very interesting how that is going to function in this text and in the rest of the text we're going to read. As has been mentioned in previous discussions of symbology, there's multiple meanings going here. So you've got the sudden and instant thunderbolt, and then the hard and lasting diamond aspect of it. So once more, the dual symbolism doing both at once. And there will be texts which will pick one side and talk about that. For example, when we read and discussed the Diamond Sutra ages ago on this show, that was called the Vajra Something Sutra in, in Sanskrit. I can't remember the rest of the title, but Vajra was the first word in the title. And that's sort of, it's an explication of the sort of diamond-like resilience of insight into emptiness. Sort of that will color how a person reads and understands the rest of the sutra, knowing the Vajra symbol and its importance. This has been part one, a fascicle one, of the Vajra Sekara Sutra. Join us next week for part two of Fascicle One, where we will be looking at the construction of the Diamond Realm Mandala, one of the two most important mandalas in all of esoteric Buddhism. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.